As I mentioned last week at the outset, I believe this series in the Old Testament, these stories, um, remarkable stories of faith and triumph are opportunities for you and I to see the character of God on display. Are you thankful to know that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's an unchanging God. Our God is unchanging. And so what we know to be true of our God is consistent. He's eternal. And so the Old Testament reveals so much about the character of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And so I believe these stories will reveal to us the character of God that is on display and also reveal some things about ourselves as human beings and reveal where our faith really needs to rest and where our faith needs to lie. And so, again, I hope you've been encouraged by the series already after the first week. This morning, as we go to Daniel chapter 3, let me just give us a bit of background to the passage that we're going to look at. Because I want to get us up to speed before we hit chapter 3. In chapter 1 of Daniel, and again, I, we're kind of doing a quick drive-by in some of these books. So we don't have time to just be able to fill you in on all the theological and historical uh, backdrop to everything that we're talking about. We could do a series, really, in Daniel that goes quite long. If you were part of Pastor Butch's studies on Wednesday evening, I just went through the book of Daniel and that. And, and so we, we could take a long time, but we want to focus in on particular passages and stories. But I at least want to get us up to speed here. Chapter 1, we read of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He had besieged Jerusalem. He'd taken captive some of the young men of Israel to Babylon, which included Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were of the tribe of Judah. You might not know three of those names, but three of those names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their names would be changed. And we'll talk about that in a moment. These men had their names changed. Daniel would be called Belteshazzar. Hananiah would be called Shadrach. Mishael would be called Meshach. And Azariah would be called Abednego. Most of us are familiar with the names of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, but Daniel and his three friends, initially Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were taken captive in this Babylonian captivity after Jerusalem was besieged. And King Nebuchadnezzar brought them into Babylon. And while there, there was a desire to change these Hebrew boys' names, customs, culture, belief as they were brought out of Jerusalem and held captive. And so again, their names were changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel would interpret a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that none of the other magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, wise men could interpret. Daniel would interpret that dream, and because of this, Daniel in chapter 2 would be promoted to the position of ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. At the end of chapter 2, we read that at the request of Daniel, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel remained at the king's court. So these Hebrew boys, now men, as we approach chapter 3, some believe there might have been 15 years that has passed between chapter 2 and and chapter 3, that these were teenagers when they were initially brought into captivity. Very young men are now men possibly at the age of even 30 or in positions of authority in the province of Babylon under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's important to note that although they are in captivity and although they are no longer in their homeland, although their names have been changed, their culture has dramatically changed, and the culture and kingdom they find themselves living in is a pagan and idolatrous culture, 
they would not defile themselves in any of the pagan ways of this kingdom and of this land. They were remaining faithful to the God of Israel, to the one true living God. They remained faithful to him, and God blessed them in this. They were in positions of authority in a foreign land with a pagan people while not giving up their true worship of the one true living God. God certainly had been with them and blessed them in this. It brings us to chapter 3. It's where we're introduced to an incredible story, a true story. Again, I want to emphasize this every week. These are not fictional stories, okay? This is true history. This is true stories that took place with real people at a real point in time in history. We read this incredible story in Daniel chapter 3, and we see during this time period of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar an absolutely incredible uh, unfolding of events in chapter 3. So let's pick up there. Pick up in Daniel chapter 3. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 7. Again, we're going to read quite a bit of text today. And so as we did last week, we'll take some breaks, make some comments, look at, point out a few things, and then we'll go on from there. Daniel chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the scene. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, king that worshiped many different gods and idols, a king who thought very highly of himself, by the way, and we'll see that as this story unfolds. King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold, makes an image of gold 90 feet high and around 9 feet wide. This is a massive image, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. He sends word to gather all of the important people in Babylon, all the leaders, anybody who is anybody in Babylon for a dedication or the unveiling of this golden image. So he sends and gathers leaders, military chiefs, lawyers, judges, officials, magistrates to this special dedication. You would imagine this king, he's excited about this unveiling, about this massive image, which by the way, most believe it was an image that was basically unto himself, that people would look and they would be bowing down and worshiping an image that, rev that looked like him <laughs> as far as the cold head. He thought pretty highly of himself, this guy, okay? And so after he sets up this massive image and he's excited about it, he makes, you know, this, this call out to anybody who's anybody in Babylon and says, you all need to be there for this dedication. So everyone important was going to be there, including anybody with positions of authority and oversight. So guess who that would include? Remember what we just talked about, right? It would include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A lot of people say, well, where was Daniel? I don't know where Daniel was. He might have been on a journey. 
He might have been sick that day. I don't know. But what I can tell you is he wasn't there for this because we're going to read as we continue on in the book of Daniel. Daniel's faithfulness in God was unwavering. So certainly Daniel would not be bowing down to this image. But Daniel's not mentioned in this passage. And so it would have been, wouldn't have been unlikely that he might have been journeying, that he might have been traveling, that he might have been in a different province. Who knows? He was about the king's business. But he certainly wasn't there when this was going to happen. And I can't tell you this truth, like as far as from the scriptures, but my mind wondered and thought, if you, if you think about Daniel and the respect Nebuchadnezzar had for Daniel, I wonder if the timing of this thing wasn't even in conjunction when Daniel wasn't even going to be there and the king purposely planned this. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that the king was excited and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be there because they were there. They were there and they would have a decision to make. You see a problem brewing here? In the passage, maybe some conflict that's going to take place here. Again, I I just love God's word. And and God's word is so intriguing to me. Um, I love God's word and and how God shows up in these moments. And God teaches us in these moments. But there's a problem brewing here. Verse 3 tells us they all came. And at the end of the verse, we're told they're standing before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the king's like, hey, everybody needs to be here. I want you to see this image. I have a plan here. I want everybody present. And so everybody shows up, and they're standing before this 90-foot-high image that the king had made. In verses 4 to 6, as we've already read, says that the herald proclaimed the king's command that when they heard the sound of all of those instruments that would be played, they needed to fall down and worship this golden image. So it wasn't just... Uh, an attitude or response the king was asking of you need to bow down before it out of respect but it was you need to bow down and you need to what worship this image you need to bow down and you need to worship this image and if you don't no big deal but you'll be immediately thrown into a burning fiery furnace okay that's what the king is commanding here that's what the king is challenging them here that's how kings worked back then by the way You do what they tell you to do or death. There's no messing around here. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a particularly prideful king, arrogant king, pagan king, evil king, made it so that if anybody would not worship what he had brought to them, then they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. So verse 7, look again, verse 7. It says that, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar's plan's unfolding. They start all the instrumentation. It's blazing, and everybody, it says all the peoples bowed down and worshiped before this image. Well, we're about to see not everyone bowed down during this period of time. Not everyone. But I just want to point out how quickly and how fickle The crowd can be, if we can think on that for a moment. All these people who had never once seen this image bow down or worshipped it, knew nothing about it, all gathered together for the unveiling of this image. And when they were told to bow and worship, they bowed and worshipped. That's the world and the crowd. Fickle, without commitment, without dedication, willing to do whatever they're told to do in worship of a pagan image. So quickly, so quickly. But in the midst of everyone else bowing down, we'll see that not everyone did. Pick up in verse 8. Let's look at verses 8 to 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Okay, that's, a, that's an opening statement that's going to start to set 
the rest of the tone of the passage. It says that, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They hated the Jews. They maliciously would accuse them. They, they hated them. These were their enemies. You can imagine if you're an enemy of the Jewish people, if you hate the Jewish people, and right in your own province, in your own kingdom that you see, these Jewish men promoted the positions of significance in the kingdom. Talk about envy. Talk about envy and jealousy and the wrath that would follow that. And the word of God tells us who can stand before envy. Certainly there was envy here and jealousy here, rage that was here. Verse 9, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears, and again, the list is here. I'm going to read it. It's here, all right? The list is over and over again, but it's included, so I'll read it again. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast to a burning, fiery furnace. They recount to the king his own words, and they say, King, O king, live forever, O king. You're the greatest, O king. There's no one like you. Didn't you make this decree that everybody needs to bow down to your amazing image? Didn't you make this decree? They say, there are, verse 12, certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see what happened here? These Chaldeans, they come before the king, and they're telling the king, they're accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of things. They're accusing These men of paying no attention to you, O king. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, we certainly wouldn't say that these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, paid no attention to the king because they were present for this. They were called to be present for this. I read one commentator who pointed out that when it talks about the description of the men, when they would be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, it gives a description of all the clothing that they were wearing, that they were dressed up for this occasion, That they were, in many ways, listening to the authority of the king. They were under the authority of the king. And so much as it didn't uh, interfere with their worship of the true living God, they were abiding by what the king was asking them to do, to gather and to be present for this unveiling. They were there. But they're making accusations against these men. They pay no attention to you, O king, which is a lie. But that's what they're telling the king. And t- I'll tell you what, if you are a prideful, arrogant king and you hear that the people under your rule pay no attention to you, you think you're gonna get a little hot over that? No doubt, jealousy, hatred, envy was overtaking these individuals. But they said they pay no attention to you, O king. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just want to pause and tell you that is a magnificent statement about these men. They do not worship your gods or the golden image that you have set up. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you set up. Praise God that that was true of these men. But as I was thinking about this, I thought, think of the people. There would have been many, many people that would have been present for this. Many people that would have been present for this. And yet... Where was the fixation in the eyes of these individuals that wanted to bring accusation against these men? It was on what they were doing. There was a purpose here. They hated these men. They were jealous of these men. And they were literally desiring the death of these men as they go to the king. They wanted these men dead. And they were bringing it to the king's attention. So let me pause 
for a moment, and I'm going to say something that I said last week, and I'm going to say it again. This is where the story gets good, okay? This is where the story gets good. I want to point out this morning five truths from the passage that were true then and that are also true now. And from that, I want to give us five challenges to embrace for our own lives today. And so let's look at these first, these five truths that we see here. True then, and it is true now. Truth number one, we live in an evil world that hates God and hates those solely committed to God. It was true then, and it is true now. If you look at the text of this passage, if you look at what's going on here, King Nebuchadnezzar was an evil pagan king. He literally created an image to be worshipped as God. He literally wanted people to worship him even as God. He worshipped many gods. He exalted himself, was prideful, arrogant, and selfish. And the world hated God's people then, and the world hates God's people now. Those Chaldeans came forward accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They hated them. Their accusation was meant for certain death. And why? Consider this. Why did they want them dead? Why were they accusing them? It was because they would not bow down and worship this pagan image. That's why. They hated them because they worshiped the one true living God. They hated them because they were worshiping the God of Israel. They hated these men because of that. And they were fixated on finding a way to accuse them, to get rid of them. And similarly to what we'll hear in a couple of weeks about the life of Daniel, they found the only way that they could bring accusation against these men was if it was in reference to their worship of their God. Which, by the way, is absolutely fantastic. You and I look at this and think like, man, that's terrible. No, it's not. That's fantastic. That the only way someone could accuse us if it's in reference to our worship and dedication to our God. Are you kidding? That's fantastic. And that's what was going on here. They knew these men were men of character. They knew these men would not compromise. I want you to think about this. The king summons all the leaders. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. And then he wants everyone to bow down. And the passage says everybody did. Clearly not these three men, but everybody would bow down. And I'm thinking, how in the world would these men even know that they didn't bow down? The only way they would know that is if they were watching. And you know why I believe they were watching? Because they knew they wouldn't bow. I think they knew it. Praise God that that's the case. They knew their commitment To the God of Israel, they knew their commitment to the living God. And so I believe they were watching and they knew they wouldn't bow down. And you can say, well, they weren't watching. Yeah, they were because they brought it to the king. These men will not bow down, O king. Out of the whole crowd, they saw three, three that would not bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure these men knew from a very young age growing up Exodus chapter 20, verse four and five, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They would have been taught this from the time they were very young. They knew this, they would obey this and they were hated for it. Friends, listen to me this morning. We live, they lived and we live in an evil world that hates God and hates those who are solely committed to God. It was true then and it's true now. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Let's pick up verse 13 to 15. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So the king, here, let's pause for a moment. The king brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to them. And again, this is something, in some ways, I don't want to commend the evil king, but in some ways this is commendable, that the king, before just taking the word of these other men, he he wants to hear it for himself from these men which is a good thing. He brings them in and he says, listen, I, I'm hoping this isn't true, guys, but is it true, is it true that you did not bow down like you were supposed to, to the image that I've set up? Verse 15. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, they lo- God, for some reason, God really wanted to include all of these instruments because I know it can sound repetitive, but God includes it. If you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, listen to this. Listen to what the king tells them. These three men are standing before the king. This is not a light matter. This is the king who has all authority and all power in this province. He is the ruler here and he's made a decree, a command. You will bow down and worship. And he says, if you are ready to do this good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. He doubles down here. He says, you're gonna be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Look at the question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? This is where in the movie, if there's a movie of this, the music changes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you you won't bow down? Listen, (laughs) guys, I'm gonna give you an opportunity. When you hear all the instruments, You will bow down and worship. And if you don't, you will be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Like there's an evilness here. This is an individual that thinks very highly of himself. So much so that the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say they serve and believe in, you know what Nebuchadnezzar is saying? Your God has no power here to deliver you out of my hand. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? This king would soon find out. So come back next week. We're going to talk more about, I'm kidding. (laughs) This king would soon find out. I want to believe that the king knew the reason these men refused to bow down. It was because of their God. Because the king makes a point in some ways to mock that. Later on, as we read at the end of the story, which we'll get there, the king is going to make mention of the fact that he knew the reason they wouldn't bow down was in commitment to their God. That's why in his rage and in his arrogance, he would ask the question, who is this God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? Notice how quickly this pagan king forgets about the God who he had earlier called in chapter 2, the God of gods. If you jump back to chapter 2, we don't have time to look at it all, but in chapter 2, verse 47, after Daniel interprets the king's dream through the power of God and the revealing that God gave to Daniel, following that interpreting, the king said, 
Nebuchadnezzar, same king, said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Those words came out of this same king's mouth in chapter two. And here we are in chapter three, and he's asking the question, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Well, very easily, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have answered and said, the God of gods and the king of kings that you mentioned earlier, king, that God. But how quickly the king forgot about this God of gods. You know who didn't forget? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't we forget sometimes? Don't we forget sometimes who our God is, what our God is capable of doing, and what our God has done? Let's pick up verses 16 to 18. This, by the way, verses 16 to 18, absolutely incredible response. Absolutely incredible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I just, every time I read that, I kind of chuckle and think like, this is a evil, pagan, prideful, arrogant king who thought of himself as a god. And in the moment that he wants them to be the most terrified of his power and of his ability, and he demands an answer from them, these three men stand before the king and say, oh, king, we don't even need to answer you in this matter. I, that's just incredible to me. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible because the king is such a wicked, prideful, arrogant individual who is all about putting on prominent display his authority and power. And they say this, if this be so, if it's true that you're gonna throw us into a fiery furnace, a burning, fiery furnace, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You know what they say to the king? If it's true that you're gonna throw us into a fiery furnace, the God that we serve, he's able to deliver us out of that and deliver us out of your hand, O king. Talk about confidence in the Lord. Talk about complete, unwavering boldness, faith, peace that they had in the midst of this turmoil. Unwavering peace, commitment and trust they had in the midst of this turmoil in their God. King, if it's true, you're gonna throw us into a fiery furnace, our God that we serve, he can keep us safe and he can deliver us from that and he can deliver us out of your hand. This is what I find incredible about their boldness here. They're telling the king, not only is God able to deliver us from the furnace, he can deliver us out of your hand. You have no power here. You have no authority here. Verse 18, but if not, and this is where all of us, I think, struggle at times. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know what these men said to the king? In response to the king, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? You know what they said, king? We don't even need to answer you on this. We don't have to give you an answer to this. The God that we serve is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace, which is always described by the king and the Herod as the burning fiery furnace for effect, right? The burning fiery furnace. God is able to deliver us out of that and he is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. Incredible confidence, incredible faith, incredible peace. 
But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also had a proper view of God and God's authority and God's power and God's will. And they said, and king, even if God doesn't deliver us from this trial, we will still refuse to bow down and worship this image that you've set up. It was true then, it is true now. The world and those in the world do not have any type of final authority over us. I immediately think of the words of Jesus. John chapter 19, as Jesus is standing before Pilate, Pilate says to Jesus, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Christ modeled this. These three men modeled this. The apostles modeled this in their belief and faith, being willing to stay faithful to the point of death. The world and those in the world do not have any type of final authority over us. It was true then. It is true now. Third, God does not always give physical deliverance and rescue from the trials of this life. It was true then, and it is true now. God does not always give physical deliverance and rescue from the trials of this life as we're walking through those trials. They realized this. Their confidence in the Lord was not that God would deliver them. It was that he is fully able to deliver them. Their worship of God was not based upon what they hoped God would do, but based upon what they knew God could do. They worshiped God as God, knew him as God, independent of the circumstances of their life. And that would not change for these men. They recognized this. They understood this. God doesn't always work by delivering from trials. It needs to be enough to know and have confidence that he will be faithful in those trials. And that's what these men knew. They would remain faithful to him. Pick up verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. You think? Filled with fury. He's an angry man in this passage, okay? Multiple times he is absolutely enraged at the responses of these three men. He's filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Not quite sure why, other than he was really mad, right? Because the burning fiery furnace that everybody would be thrown into if they didn't was gonna be sufficient to burn them up. But the king's mad. He's like, seven times hotter. Like he wants it hotter, okay? He ordered some of the mighty men of his army. Again, this is humorous to me, the sense of humor of God. in this. He, he gets some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. They were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Again, listen to me. If we are in our current world, our current situation, current modern church culture, we look at this text we look at this text, and here's what we're expecting God is going to do. We're expecting that prior to them getting thrown into that fiery furnace, the king's mad, he's enraged, he orders it seven times hotter, he gets the mighty men of his army to bind these men, and just as they're about to be thrown in the furnace, God intervenes. Because that's what God has to do. That's what in our mind God has to do. That just before the men are gonna throw in the fiery furnace, the heavens open and armies of angels come and deliver the men from the furnace. Or we, we expected at that very moment, all the mighty men of the army just drop dead and they're standing there and everybody's appalled and amazed. Or we expect that God's gonna give these three men the superhuman strength or immediately he's just gonna arm them and they're gonna be able to fight their way out of this. 
That's what we expect. That's almost what we demand of God in the midst of trials, don't we? But you know what this passage says? It says, as they stood on their faith and confidence in God, not that God would deliver them, but that God could deliver them. And even if he didn't, they would remain faithful to God. And it says in this passage that these men were bound. In verse 21, they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order, verse 22, was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. I wonder if you're watching this whole scene unfold. And you were there that day. What would be your opinion of God? And I think some of us jump to premature conclusions about how God is working when we can't figure out what he's doing. Because this scene has dramatically shifted. These are three men of God, committed to God, unwavering in their commitment to God. And God has allowed them to be thrown into a burning fiery furnace. Sometimes God doesn't give physical deliverance and rescue from the trials of this life. Sometimes God will be most glorified as we walk through and endure those trials. Sometimes that's God's plan for us. But again, the story doesn't stop here. Pick up again, verse 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the burning, fiery furnace. It's hard not to get emotional reading the next verses. Because aren't we prone to doubt God when we're walking through things that we never would have expected God allow us to walk through? And the questions that sometimes fill our minds of God, do you see, do you know, are you here, do you get it? So as these men are thrown in the burning fiery furnace, Naturally, everybody's watching and looking. The king himself is looking. And look at verse 24. The king, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It was true then and it is true now. Our God is faithful. 
and he can do the impossible. Three men are thrown in, but I see four. Three men are thrown in, but I see four walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There's debate about this. Many believe this is a Christophany. This is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament scriptures that is there in the fire with them. Some believe this is an angel of the Lord. We can't be absolutely 100% certain here, but certainly it is the presence of God and faithfulness of God in the midst of the fire that these men literally were enduring. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, verse 26. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I love the detail the scriptures give there. Don't you love that? Can we give praise to God for that right there? Just give him praise for that. I said this last week. I don't think you're as excited as you should be about this. The detail that God gives us in this passage wasn't that they came out of the fire and they were a mess. Burns all over their body. All of their nice garments completely ruined. It says they came out of the fire and it says the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. Our God does the impossible. Our God is faithful and he does the impossible. It was true then. It is true now, church. This is the God that we serve and that we so often and so quickly can forget. Five, our God is worthy of all of the glory. As the king goes on, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's blessing God again. <laughs> this, this evil king, he's blessing God again. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. And this is where I tell you that Nebuchadnezzar knew exactly why they didn't bow down because look at what Nebuchadnezzar says. He delivered his servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel, delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Might that be said of you and I even today? Might it be said of you and I that we trust in our God, that we are his servants, that we set aside any commands and we yield up our bodies rather than serve and worship any God than our God? That's what God expects of us as his children. That's what God demands of us as his children. That's what God empowers us to do as his children. What a testimony, what an incredible commitment before God. The king would go on to make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. I mean, that's kind of, that's harsh. If anybody doesn't or says anything evil about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to be torn limb from limb. Their houses will be laid in ruins. There is no other God who was able to rescue in this way. Listen to me, church. God put these, allowed these men to go through this trial Ultimately, so that a conclusion would be reached, there is no other God like the Lord. 
Can you imagine if they stood before the king and king was like, guys, it's okay, go, go to your homes. I'm not gonna do anything here. This conclusion wouldn't have been reached. But God receives the glory. I just wanna give a heads up to the band if they're listening. We're not gonna have that last song because I'm not done yet. And so we're not gonna have time. It was true then and it's true now. We live in an evil world that hates God and hates those solely committed to God. The world and those in the world do not have any type of final authority over us. God does not always give physical deliverance and rescue from the trials of this life. But our God is faithful and he can do the impossible and he is worthy of all of the glory. So how do we respond today? Number one, church, I wanna encourage you with this. Be prepared to suffer for your commitment to the Lord. Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of me. He said he came not to bring peace, but a sword. We're told all those who live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. So Christian, believer in Jesus Christ, look at me for a moment here. You and I need to be prepared for suffering for the cause of Christ. We need to be committed to that. The apostles looked at that as a privilege. They said that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We need to be prepared to suffer for our commitment to the Lord. We must always obey God rather than man. There are times when there will be a conflict between obeying God and obeying man. You think that's going on today? There's a conflict between obeying God and obeying man. We must obey God. There are times when there will be a conflict between obeying the government and obeying God. We must obey God. There are times when there will be a conflict between supporting the sin that is prevalent around us and obeying God. We must obey God. If you're a committed follower of Jesus today, be prepared to suffer for that commitment. Number two, have confidence in the power of God and in his absolute authority. These three men from the text certainly did. If you read the New Testament scriptures, Jesus certainly had confidence in the authority of the Father. The apostles certainly did as they faced martyrdom and severe persecution. God is in control. Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Have confidence in the power of God and in his absolute authority. Number three, remember God's faithfulness. Don't forget the faithfulness of God. We are so prone to forget, aren't we? Just as we saw last week and we'll see again this week, God is faithful I encourage you last week, and I want to encourage you again this week in the course of this series with two challenges. Number one, get a journal. Get a journal so that you can write down the faithfulness of God in your life. When God shows himself faithful, when God shows up in ways that there's no explanation other than this is what God is doing. When God answers prayer, when God shows you that he's faithful and that he's powerful, his power is on display in your life, get a journal, write it down, and look back on that and take confidence in the faithfulness of our God. Do it. Quit waiting. Not right now, at the end. When you go to your ABF, take out your phones and order stuff during ABF. I'm kidding. In addition to that, memorize these two scripture passages, Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. 
And memorize Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Remember God's faithfulness. And finally, last, I'm landing the plane here. Have a greater commitment to the glory of God than to our own personal deliverance. And this is hard. As human beings, this is hard. Listen to me, and I I think for some of us, you might seem like I'm meddling here, which I am on purpose. For some of us, self-preservation is king. For some of us in our lives, self-preservation is king. It matters more than anything else. Whatever I want matters more. Whatever makes me feel important or good or happy or successful just matters more than anything else in life. That is not the attitude or perspective of the child of God. That must not be the attitude or perspective of the child of God. We must have a greater commitment to the glory of God than to our own personal deliverance. And I would add to that, or our own personal happiness. We have a greater commitment to the glory of God than even our own personal deliverance or happiness. Husbands, you should love your wife, but not more than Christ. Wives, you should love your husband, but not more than Christ. Parents, you should love your children, but not more than Christ. Children, you should love your parents, but not more than Jesus. Students, singles, widows, you should love your friends and families, but not more than Christ. Husbands, you should be committed to your wife, but not more than Christ. Wives, you should be committed to your husbands, but not more than Christ. And parents, to your children, but not more than Christ. And children, to your parents, but not more than Christ. It's okay to love things in this life, to love your job, a hobby, a sport, a cup of coffee, a car, a house, a vacation spot, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. It's okay to love your country or a cause, a book, music, or art, but never in any of these things is it okay to love them more than Jesus. It's not okay to be more committed to any of these things than our commitment to Christ and to Christ alone. He must matter more in our lives. And we must have a greater commitment to him than to anything else, including ourselves, our happiness, or our preservation. Jesus must matter more. And so be prepared to suffer for your commitment to the Lord. Have confidence in that, in the power of God and in his complete authority. Remember and take confidence in God's faithfulness to us. And be resolved when your commitment to the Lord more than anything else. We cannot do that on our own. We need him. And aren't you thankful to know today what a friend we have in Jesus who is always with us. I'm way over. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the friend that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the confidence we can have that you never leave us or forsake us. You are with us always. And so, Father, we commit to you as our reasonable act of worship ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices, that it would matter more to us to bring you glory than it would be to have our own good. Our prayer today, Lord, is not that we would have our own way, but that you would have your way in our lives. And so use us for your glory in accomplishing that. In Jesus' name, amen.